its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. The entertainment industry is a quintessential component of the California dream. Films, television, and music created in the Golden State inspire and educate and attract people from all over the world, while productions themselves stimulate local economies. In California alone, the entertainment industry is responsible for over half a million jobs and more than 120 billion U.S. dollars in outputs. That's staggering. And while this sector provides many of our most formative memories, ranging from cartoon characters to chart-topping songs, it also has an opportunity to both influence and act on social and environmental challenges. The American entertainment industry produces approximately 700 films and 500 television series annually. And a typical movie with a budget of $50 million generates roughly 4,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide. According to research from UCLA, a single soundstage can result in 4,000 hectares of deforestation due to the need for a type of plywood that's often unsustainably harvested. But while the entertainment industry has substantial environmental impact, it can also catalyze conversation and inspire action on environment and climate issues via its powerful storytelling. In fact, research has shown that when immersed in a story, audiences are more open to receiving messages, a process called narrative transportation. And this is one way the entertainment and media industries can have a role in advancing sustainability, including by telling the oft-forgotten climate stories of diverse creators, including women, girls, and vulnerable communities. Environmental responsibility and inclusive storytelling are becoming important themes in entertainment capitals such as New York City, Atlanta, Tokyo, and Toronto. And in this discussion, we'll hear from two women reimagining these intersections between climate change and the entertainment industry. One will talk about how the industry can advance diverse climate stories, while the other will discuss how tailored sustainability strategies can reduce the environmental footprint of productions. So please join me in welcoming our panelists, Lindsay Crowder, Climate Program Director at Exposure Labs, and Emily O'Brien, Founder and CEO of Earth Angel. Lindsay, thank you so much for being here today with us. Could you get us started with a brief introduction to Exposure Labs? Of course, and thank you for having me. Um, so Exposure Labs is a film and impact production company. Um, we were formed in 2012 um, with the uh, start of our original production, Chasing Ice, and then um, later our production team went on to make Chasing Coral and The Social Dilemma. Um, through the kind of process of making those films, we've also built impact campaigns alongside each of those films. And now we're currently situated as um, a film and impact team, team with um, which houses both original productions, short form productions, and then also our impact work. And most of our team is based in Boulder, Colorado, but um, we do have team members across the country and then we work with partners across the globe as well. Thank you so much. And Emily, welcome to you as well. And would you mind telling us a little bit about Earth Angel? 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Um, so Earth Angel is a sustainability consulting agency tailored to the film and television sector. Um, I've personally been working in this intersection of sustainability and production for about 11 years. Um, Earth Angel has service productions all over North America um, and including some international partnerships, but namely Los Angeles, New York, Atlanta, Toronto, and Vancouver. Um, we work with feature films, television series, commercials, live events, uh, and really help them to both track their carbon footprint uh, and mitigate the environmental impact of those productions. All right, time for the fun part. All of the questions, which we have many, so we'll see how many we can get into the convo today. Um, for starters, Lindsay, I'm going to jump in with you with the, the big, broad question right off the bat. Can you talk a little bit about the power of storytelling to facilitate conversations about and prompt action, you know, around the climate change issues that we have today? Yes, um, this is like the essence of everything that we do. Um, so storytelling has this really kind of magical and transformational way of grounding a lot of these massive issues of um, our time in real life. So um, stories also have the ability to shape culture and harness our collective imagination on what's possible as we um, begin building towards a more just and sustainable future. Um, so you mentioned this in the intro, but when you're engaged in a story or finish a film, you're often left touched in a way that sometimes science and logic don't always achieve and reshaping that awareness and the un which allows you to reshape the awareness and understanding of the issue. And this kind of important moment um, or space is really important to nurture to create action. Um, so our work um, introduces audiences to a diversity of climate stories, a diversity of climate storytellers, and then takes viewers on an engagement journey towards action, which often is predetermined by our partners, but um, could mean anything from facilitating a conversation to taking a call to action to joining a community group, or there's a variety of different things. And of course, to get there, to get to the piece of media that can be shared at whatever scale that might be, there's the production side of things. And so, Emily, historically, what exactly has made television, film, and other media production so unsustainable? You know, what has prevented change in the industry? Yeah, great question. And actually, I just want to piggyback onto something that Lindsay said really quickly as well, because the the messaging and the physical production, I think these are like both really important components of how this industry can transition into more sustainable modes of operating. And to speak to the power of the messaging around this industry, like part of the reason I'm doing the work that I'm doing now in the environmental space is because I was influenced by a story. Mm -hmm. um, I actually remember the first time I ever watched the film Aaron Brockovich, I was 11 years old, and I was so compelled by the story of this woman who is fighting corporate climate pollution um, and just really thinking, I have to I have to do something about this, too. You know, like, how are how is this allowed to happen? How are communities allowed to, um, you know, be impacted this way negatively in terms of their health? And that story stayed with me for so long. And is a huge reason and why I work in the environmental space. So I think just going to Lindsay's point, like the, this industry has the power to, you know, change people's lives and change people's behavior and change, you know, potentially policy, you know? So it's just really such 
it's such an influential and, and, and powerful sector that we work in. And so then talking about the ways that it's like the physical production of it are not very sustainable, you know, the the reality is that the industry is very transient. It's very circus like, you know, we roll into these um, communities. We set up shop. We have all these different people. We create all these sets and we tear it all down and we leave. Um, and so, like many sort of circus like sectors, um, they tend to be very fossil fuel dependent. Um, so the fleets of vehicles that we have to operate to transport people, to transport equipment, um, our sets are notoriously powered by diesel generators. Um, you know, the, the fossil fuel dependency is a huge component um, of, of our industry's footprint. In addition to the waste, you know, the amount of uh, construction materials that go into um, building a set, the food waste that goes into feeding hundreds of people every day, um, you know, the power it takes to, to light the sets um, as well. So all of these components, because we move at such an incredibly fast pace in our sector, um, have contributed towards a, you know, not so sustainable model, but slowly but surely we're tackling those various impact areas. And from Earth Angels perspective, what is your strategy for working with productions on a fairly individual basis to improve the sustainability of filming? Like, How do you actually tackle that challenge? Yeah, absolutely. So at Earth Angel, we like to um, tell people to think of us as your sustainability department. Um, so in the same way, other film departments operate, the electric department, the construction department, the camera department, we tell them to think of us as your sustainability department. So we have um, a team of regional eco coordinators who liaise and do all the sort of, uh, you know, high level logistical meetings with the departments, et cetera. Um, and then we have eco production assistants on the ground who are physically working with the shooting crews, setting up zero waste stations, setting up water stations. So, you know, wean us off of single use plastics and then supporting those team members um, internally at Earth Angel, we have different sustainability specialists. So we have our analytics manager who's just focused on tracking and reporting the impact. Uh, we have our strategy manager who's really focused on procurement, energy, waste strategies, um, our materials manager who really dives into the asset repurposing, you know, where are all these materials going? How can we redistribute them? Um, as well as our education manager who really comes into training and, and um, education, uh, you know, assets for all of these crew members. So when we integrate ourselves as fellow crew members um, who understand the demands of the production. You know, these solutions, they have to fit productions, uh, logistical constraints, they have to fit productions, budget constraints. Um, that's how we can really affect that tangible change over the course of a show. That makes a lot of sense. Um... And we'll get into some some of those specific details, I think, a little bit more later. But, Lindsay, I want to turn back to you now. And something that Exposure Labs does that I find quite fascinating is kind of create a positive feedback loop and, and sort of a two-way street here of being able to help climate organizers use storytelling in their work. But simultaneously, you help storytellers who are talking about climate and environment actually create impact and change later on down the road. So how do you... It's a big question, but maybe you can just whet our appetites. How does that process work? 
Yeah, it's it's a great question and it's kind of the design that we've been twirling around in our minds for years of just thinking what is that kind of holistic additive cycle that is additive to both storytellers and organizers. And um, one of the ways that we've identified, and this was through, as they mentioned in the previous um, panel, through a lot of piloting, um, we're big fans of piloting as well over here, but um, through several pilots and just listening to reflections from the field and debriefing with partners and kind of doing a larger stakeholder assessment on needs across the field, um, we identified that Organizers, climate organizers are inherently storytellers. Um, they're world building on a daily basis. They're meeting their communities where they're at. They're messaging these like massive issues in a way that um, many of us as storytellers don't even have the ability to. So, and then storytellers have the expertise of creating this art in many different mediums that can reach mass audiences. So, our role is kind of being that bridge builder and how do we put these two kind of ecosystems in community with each other so that there is a reciprocity and a mutuality that is benefiting both and with organizers we've identified through piloting that there's um, a couple ways that we've been uh, working with particularly organizers in the u.s south is um, we've built a library of um, tools and films for organizers to be able to have access to but in addition to that we've also um, created a sub-granting program so that we can also resource them to be able to use film and storytelling within their organizing and um, for climate storytellers, we've built impact labs and provided seed funding and consulting and through those labs have resourced organizers to join and give feedback as well. So um, it's, it's a general kind of sense of ecosystem building, but it includes um, capacity building, training tools, and just ensuring that all, both sides of the equation have the resources to be able to engage in the work. I think that's particularly powerful because there's a need to recognize where the stories are coming from, right? Mm -hmm. It's not always the people who are who are well prepared to create the massive film or television series who are the ones generating the stories based on lived experiences, which is why I want to ask you a question here about the importance of shifting from extractive to participatory storytelling models and why this is actually particularly relevant to content about climate change and the environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, and this kind of goes into what Emily was sharing of like the circus dynamic of entering communities and kind of building out this production arm. It, it's the same with telling a story is that um, historically, and I think just dominant culture represents a trend in extractive storytelling where um, artists, storytellers, journalists have swooped into communities and kind of pulled these stories um, for their own personal gain. And very, very rarely the communities themselves actually benefit from that storytelling. Um, so there's a practice that's kind of sweeping across the industry and um, a lot of different leaders within the kind of industry are interrogating what does that process look like and how do we make that more participatory? How do we bring organizers or frontline communities or um, communities closest to the issue in from the beginning and have them be part of like a, consulti a consultative participatory process? So not only are the stories themselves a more um, kind of authentic and true version of that story, but um, the communities that they're about have been brought in and there's some form of reciprocity um, to, to make it like a just, a just practice. 
incredibly important. Um, I'm now going to jump back to, to Emily and ask a question that is going to have a, a buzzword or maybe a buzz film in it to maybe pique the audience's interest a little. Um, Earth Angel worked to green the set of The Amazing Spider-Man 2 as one of many projects you've worked on, but I know that's a fan favorite. Um, and it actually earned praise as Sony's most eco-friendly blockbuster. So I was wondering, sort of in the context of this particular film that so many people are familiar with, can you sort of give us a sense of what sorts of sustainability improvements you were able to implement on this particular set? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Spider-Man was um, a massive, massive, we're talking, you know, tentpole production. So there was a lot of opportunity um, to implement some of these measures. So, you know, some of the key uh, achievements, I think, that I'm particularly proud of, um, you know, the efforts to eliminate single-use plastic water bottles. Uh, it's estimated that we saved almost 200,000 or avoided the use of almost 200,000 bottles. To put that in, into perspective, that's enough to completely surround Manhattan. Um, and so we're talking about pretty pretty significant volumes. Um, we uh, diverted through our recycling composting um, initiatives the equivalent to three Empire State Buildings worth of waste on that one production. Um, all of the leftover food from um, our crew lunches were, was recovered and donated to local soup kitchens and food banks. Um, that was nearly 6,000 meals uh, right there. So there was a variety of different things. Further donation efforts to our construction materials um, were donated. We rented and utilized salvage materials for many of the builds too. Um, and I think the the other thing about it too is we had a really great engagement strategy, you know. So um, everyone up to the talent, you know, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone knew that this was a green set and and they were so supportive of it, as were many of the department heads. Um, you know, Sony even started a Twitter campaign, Spidey Goes Green, um, around this to help engage some of the audience members uh, on this topic and, and motivate and encourage more sustainable behavior, too. Um, so, yeah, I think it was just a, a really groundba groundbreaking project in its size and scope to really kind of tackle these initiatives. And I think what what we're learning here is there are so many audiences to engage when it comes to this industry, whether it's the the viewers, the creators, or other actors and and actors is a funny word to use in the entertainment industry context, but I mean it in the sense of, you know, everyone who participates in the industry as a whole. So, Lindsay, one of the things that, that Exposure Labs also can do and does really well is to work with Hollywood, including streamer services, including distributors, including creators, to ensure that climate stories are getting out there. So how... How do you aim to help ensure that these stories are reaching the widest array of audiences by engaging with these members of the community? Yeah, so our um, each of our original productions is housed on a platform. So Chasing Ice is on Amazon Prime, and then um, Chasing Coral and uh, The Social Dilemma are both on Netflix. And um, our impact campaigns have worked really closely with each of those platforms to um, just kind of work simultaneously or in tandem on garnering audiences through um, our platform or through the impact campaign themselves. So that's that's kind of one version of, of it. Um, 
Jeff Orlowski Yang, who is our founder and director of our original productions, also sits on the sustainability board for Netflix. And um, I've also worked directly with their kind of climate department to um, work on impact campaigns uh, for their original productions that include a climate theme. Um, so in particular, most recently worked on the impact campaign for the Don't Look Up film and um, worked to ensure that the impact campaign was um, working with a kind of a greater uh, body of stakeholders that had different stakes within um, the different calls to action that they were seeking just to ensure that um, the process was um, meaningful to the, the audiences they were seeking to engage. So um, for that specific one, I worked on the like how to join a climate group, just given my background in climate organizing. Um, one other way that we, or one other um, offering that we hold is a one-on-one -on -one program that is open to all industry professionals, and it's a free kind of consult consultative um, program where anybody can sign up and have uh, a direct consultation with anybody on our team, including our production team, um, to ensure that a broader range of storytellers have a broader range of skill sets when thinking about film and impact as well. So clearly there's no shortage of things that can be done, which is really exciting to hear. And I'm glad you're piloting <laughs> so, so many of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Emily, I want to jump back to you now. You know, we've been talking, I think, a lot about film, um, but recognizing that that's not the only type of set there is, and it's not even necessarily the only one that can be environmentally detrimental if not done well. So how does the type of production, whether it be, television, film, music video, commercial, et cetera, um, as well as the location of the production, so on set versus on location, urban versus remote settings, how do all of these factors impact the options that are actually available to you as, a, as an organization to come in and say, here are your options for improving your sustainability? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say that the location is definitely one of the biggest factors that influences this. Um, sustainability in production looks very different on our Atlanta productions versus our uh, Vancouver productions, for example. Um, so, you know, access to renewable energy, uh, a huge factor there. Um, you know, when you can shoot in a in a city where the grid is um, heavily already being powered by renewable energy, such as as a place like Vancouver and the access to hydroelectric power, um, you know, you're already a step ahead of the game, of course. Um, recycling infrastructure, very, very different municipality to municipality and, and what that looks like um, as another example. So, uh, you know, and then when you look at the type of production, um, really this comes down to sort of the creative vision of what this project is. So uh, you might have a, a production that is shot entirely remotely. Like when we worked on um, Noah, for example, the Paramount Pictures film um, directed by Darren Aronofsky, you know, all of that was like it, almost entirely on location and in remote areas. So, you know, then you're having to look at, all right, well, how are we gonna power um, are set sustainably in these types of environments? Can we get access to um, alternative fuels or uh, things like that? So the strategy does shift 
um, versus a project, let's say, that is very stage heavy and it's going to be building a lot of sets and we're going to focus more on our sort of material sourcing and, and repurposing. Um, obviously, television, I think, lends itself to be more sustainable just because you have the aspect of it comes back season after season. Um, there's just more longevity to it. So we can get a little bit more creative with our series where we'll start an initiative on season one. Um, pilot an initiative, let's say, and uh, and then iterate on it for a next season um, versus films, you know, much more condensed. We have to really kind of um, work in much tighter time frames, and then commercials even more so. We're talking about a day or two or three of shooting. So um, much more uh, run and gun and, um, you know, not a long time to do high-level strategic planning. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, I want to totally switch gears here and come back to you, Lindsay, and ask you about a program that Exposure Labs has called Film in the Field. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was hoping you could tell us about this program in the context of the fact that you are able to engage a really vast array of community groups in um, in the project, including helping community groups tell their own stories uh, related to climate. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so this program, it um, we kind of launched it as a pilot in um, just around the time that the pandemic um, went underway. So um, we were thinking about virtual at the same time that we were thinking about just building this program out. And um, we launched it in 2020 in direct partnership with the Southeast Climate and Energy Network, which is a broad um, network of over 75 organizations within the um, U.S. South that centers capacity building for um, towards climate justice. And um, so the range of organizations that are part of that network is very vast, and the states that they represent are also um, very nuanced, and the issues that they work on are, are very diverse as well. Um, so we launched a request for proposal process with the network um, in 2020, and um, alongside the request for proposal, that included subgranting and the Film in the Field Library, which was a library of films and resources for groups to be able to use. And we ended up granting seven organizations to um, use film as a part of their organizing goals. We just concluded that initial pilot. And um, through kind of learnings and feedback from the field and debriefing with hosts and other organizations, um, we did learn that there was a desire for organizations to be able to use this opportunity to tell their own story and to be able to work with um, a company like Exposure Labs who has the expertise in storytelling to um, help give them the training and tools to be able to do so. So we launched um, a second version of this this program in February of 2022, and we um, included an offering for groups to be able to tell their own story, and the majority of groups ended up choosing that option, which um, proved our assumptions that um, those that are closest to the issues are best positioned to be telling the story. Um, So uh, over the next year, we'll have seven organizations across the U.S. South um, using short documentary to to tell their own story. And we can't wait to see how that goes. Genuinely. I'm so excited to. <laughs> You'll have to keep us posted. Um, we have just about five minutes left in this session, and I have a couple more questions to get to, but this has been so great. I'm so glad we were able to, able to get through so much as it is so far. Um, I'm going to turn back to you now, Emily, and I understand that 
Earth Angel has been working with the United Nations and industry stakeholders on an initiative to help the television and film sectors try to reach net zero emissions. So I was wondering what you could tell us about this project. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for the past couple of years now, um, this initiative has been in a preparatory stage. Uh, and the idea behind it is, um, you know, think the Paris Climate Accord of the film industry, something that is unique to our sector um, with a set of pledges and commitments uh, that every stakeholder in our industry could sign on to. Um, so the UNFCCC already has similar sectoral initiatives with the fashion industry, for example, and the sports industry. So kind of modeling the, the success of those initiatives, um, we are really seeking to have a way of unifying the global industry in a um, you know, multilateral uh, kind of program here. So we've brought in so far a ton of different stakeholders from studios and broadcasters to film offices and commissions to talent agencies, labor unions and guilds, um, production companies, you name it. Uh, because we all know that this is, um, you know, the the fight towards climate neutrality in any sector requires everyone to be at the table and everyone to be really engaged. So um, we're really optimistic. It's still in its preparatory phase, as I said, but um, the goal is to launch it um, hopefully by the end of this year. Uh, and if anyone's interested in kind of getting involved or hearing more about that, um, you can visit enza.earth slash census, and there's a form to fill out to uh, get more involved with it. So we're, we're very encouraged by the participation we've seen so far um, and these calls for larger unity and collaboration, I think, are really, really essential when we look at the sort of impending timeline we have here to uh, accelerate climate action. Absolutely. Okay, well, I want to wrap up our conversation today with one final question that I'd like to ask each of you. Um, and that question is, what is one tip or best practice that you would share with domestic or international creators seeking to either facilitate climate storytelling or improve production sustainability? So I will start with you, Lindsay, and then Emily, I will give you the final word. Yeah, I would say um, it's just the, it's the basis of all our work. It's kind of how I hold myself accountable is to just follow the leadership of local communities and um, listen to their needs and, and how in their approach to work and solutions. Um, I also believe that when building relationships within these communities that building a relationship on trust and um, transparency and accountability and reciprocity is equally as important. It makes a lot of sense, and I'm sensing a lot of common themes here today throughout our sessions. Um, so now I will turn it over finally to you, Emily. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point, Lindsay. I think looking to what is already happening in your community, you know, locally, there are a lot of great um, resources and initiatives that are already existing that maybe you can just help amplify. You know, you don't even necessarily have to reinvent wheels here or um, tap into some of these other programs. I think that's really essential. And um, not to be a broken record uh, from what I previously said, but I think just like the engaging of all stakeholders. It's just so, so important. Um, so for us specifically as a sector, I think what we're facing right now is like, how do we get, 
you know, film commissions at like city and state levels to help incentivize sustainable production infrastructure, for example? How do we get suppliers to help deliver the clean tech that we really need, um, you know, in a scalable and affordable way? Um, how do we make sure that, you know, cast, crew, everyone's sort of engaged and aware and, and pushing these efforts forward? So um, the collaboration piece, the, the looking to, you know, what already exists and um, what you can help amplify and plug into, I think, is, um, you know, the, the biggest piece of advice that I would give. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.